As I look across this congregation, I see people from all walks of life. I tell you, one of the things that I love most about our church is we have people that come from everywhere and from all walks of life. I see pit, rich people, I see poor people, I see skinny people, and I see healthy people. <laughs> That's right, I feel right at home here. But now listen, the thing that divide, there are many things that divide us, but the things that unite us, the two things that you and I have in common are things that I want you to consider today. You see, the two things that unite everyone in this room are, number one, should the Lord linger, every person in this room will one day die. And secondly, every person in this room will one day stand before God in judgment. For believers will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. For unbelievers, the great white throne judgment. But make no doubt about it, every one of us will stand before God in judgment. And so the purpose of today's message is to prepare every one of us for that day. Question is, are you ready? I was thinking about that last fall as a group of 12 people prepared for our medical missions trip to the Philippines. We were going to spend one week ministering to uh, the, the church and surrounding area of, of Manila with our missionary Mark Buxton because here's what our strategy was going to be. We were going to help people with their physical problems. We were going to follow the Lord's example of helping people see that their spiritual problems have an underlying greater spiritual need. And so we were there to help solve both of those problems, to help them with their infirmities, but also tell them about Jesus. And God did a wonderful work. But there were two things that I was told in preparation for the trip that I needed to be prepared for. He said, Mike, number one, these are going to be very religious people, but unsaved. And secondly, English was going to be their second language. Well, we found out very quickly, number one, Second language doesn't mean that they know English. So we quickly hired an interpreter. But secondly, secondly, I was astounded by this group of people who were associated with a prominent world religion, how, how little they knew about the Bible. In my first meeting, I mentioned as a reference Adam and Eve, and I received blank stares. These people had never heard of Adam and Eve. And I realized that if I was going to present the gospel to these people, I had to start at the very beginning. Now, God did a wonderful work that week. But as I was on the flight home, the Lord spoke to my heart. And I realized, or I thought to myself, I wonder how many people in America, because they rarely open God's Word, are ignorant of the basic teachings of the Bible regarding a subject as important as salvation. And so today I have come to share with you what the Bible teaches about the simple plan of salvation. Now, when I was on the mission field, I used this little resource to help people have a visual of some of the things that I'm going to be talking about. And so I'm going to be using this again to help me. 
And if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read verses 4 and 5. Now, this is just a starting point. But there are some basic questions that if we are going to have a proper understanding of salvation, there are some basic questions that have to be answered. And the first one is found in 1 John chapter 3. If you would stand out of honor in, in reverence of God's word, we're going to read verses 4 and 5 together. Read along with me. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Thanking you may be seated. The first question that has to be asked is this. What is sin? I, growing up, I would have assumed everybody understood what sin was all about, that we all knew what sin was. But as time has gone along and in our postmodern culture, listen, there are a lot of question marks in the minds of people about what is, what is sin. So if we are going to get a proper definition, we've got to come back to the Word of God. And according to this passage of Scripture, sin is the transgression of God's law. The transgression of God's law. Now that flies in the face with the, the world's way of thinking. Because if you would ask the person, the average person out on the street today, most of those people would say that what used to be wrong back in the 1950s is no longer wrong today. I beg to differ with you. You see, where did the law, specifically the Ten Commandments, come from? Well, we know from Scripture that God, that the law was derived from God's heart and God's mind, written with God's hand upon tablets and given to Moses, who in turn gave it to the children of Israel, and then it was available to all of us. You see, God gave us the law, and it's upon the law that we derive that which is sinful and that which is not sinful. So with that understanding, we have to make a few connections. First of all, the Bible clearly declares that God is immutable. He is unchanging. He has always been the same. He was and is and is to come. God will never change. And if God, who is unchanging, would provide us a law that is from his heart and from his mind, then we also have to believe that the law that God has given to us is also unchanging. And if God is unchanging and God's law is unchanging, guess what else is unchanging? Friend, listen to me. I can say with great confidence today that what has always been a sin is always going to be a sin because God and his law will never change. You want an example of how things have changed in our culture? Let me take a, an awful sin that I, would, I, I dare say every person in this room would agree is a sin. Take the awful sin of pedophilia. Everyone in this room would agree that it is a sin to harm a child. Amen? Well, I want you to realize back in 1950, people felt the same way about fornication and adultery that we feel about pedophilia today. But spend five minutes watching TV, looking at anything on the internet, 
and you will realize people do not feel the same way about sin that they used to feel. People no longer believe that fornication and that adultery are wrong. Now, well, Mike, what's the danger in that? Here's the danger. If what was wrong 50 years ago is not wrong today, where is our country going to be 50 years from now regarding the sin of pedophilia? Are you seeing the connection? We have to return to God's law and understand we are sinners. God will not change because God's law will not change and because God's law will never change. Sin, which has always been a sin, will always be a sin in the heart and mind of God. But here's something that most people don't even realize. When we sin, we acknowledge that we, we, we believe in the sins of commission. When I'm sharing the gospel with people, I, I return to the Ten Commandments and I ask people, have you ever lied? Have you ever taken something that didn't belong to you? Even the smallest thing? Have you ever had a lustful thought because that's adultery in your heart? Those are sins of commission. But do you realize when, when Jesus himself was asked, which is the greatest commandment? In Matthew 22, the Lord Jesus said that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and you are to love others as you love yourself. Here's something you're doing that you may not even be aware you're doing. Not only when you sin do you sin against God and, and commit a sin of commission, but listen to me. You also commit sins of omission, meaning when you steal from someone, you have failed to love God because you've chosen to love yourself more. You have failed to love the person you have stolen from because you have chosen to love yourself more. You see, our, our sins of commission and our sins of omission walk hand in hand. I hope you can realize that as you examine the Scripture, regardless of how good a person you think you are, friend, the Bible declares we have all broken God's law. We have all failed to love others and God as we ought to. We are sinners. The next question, though, that has to be answered then is, well, why? Why do we sin? Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. I think it's important that we begin in the beginning. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, let me ask you, who is the one man described in that verse of Scripture? That's talking about Adam. Now, what do we know about Adam? The Scripture clearly outlines how Jesus made him of the dust of the ground. He breathed life into Adam, and then he made Eve from Adam, and then he placed them in a perfect sinless environment and gave them just one rule. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, the Bible says that Eve was tempted of Satan and sinned against God, and Adam was tempted of Eve and sinned against God. The question then has to be asked, knowing this, that they had sinned against God, what impact did it have upon us? 
Adam's sin had both physical and spiritual aspects or effects upon us. You see, see if this makes sense to you. You were physically and biologically from your father. Does that make sense to you? You were born from your father. You came from your father. And your father was in his father. And his father was in his father. Well, if Adam was the first man, who was in Adam? All of us. Can you see physically and biologically how we were all in Adam? Well, the Bible records that when Adam sinned against God, it had an effect upon all creation. The Bible says that when they had sinned against God, that, it, that, that they recognized that they were naked, they clothed themselves, and then they went into hiding. And I love this picture in the Scripture. It was God Himself, a holy God, that went searching for a sinful man. Aren't you glad He went searching for Adam? Because in doing so, He provided an example of how He's searching for you here today if you were lost. Because you and I were in Adam, one day you will also die. The curse of Adam has been passed on to every single person in this room because you and I were in Adam. That's why I heard a pastor once say, when we pledge allegiance, we place our hand upon the drumbeat that's carrying every one of us to our grave. One day you're going to die. I hope you also see that everything that is wrong in your life is either a direct result or an indirect result of sin. Not only are we one day going to die physically, but every one of us are also born with Adam's sin nature, a desire to sin against God. You take two small children place them in a playpen and put one toy in between them and just stand back and watch what happens. You're going to hear the biggest carrying on and you're going to hear the word mine screamed a thousand times. Julie and I did this with our children just purely for entertainment. <laughs> one child is going to end up with the toy and the other one in the corner crying. Why? Because we are sinfully selfish. Adam's fall has affected us physically and affected us spiritually. And because you and I are born with that desire to sin, the Scripture says that all of us sin. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, a verse of Scripture that many of you are very familiar with. But because we are born with that desire to sin, the Scripture says, all sin, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But now this passage of Scripture shows us something else very important. Not only do we sin, but it also reveals to us that there is a standard. People have this idea that God somehow in his love for mankind sweeps that sin under the rug. I want you to know that God is still offended by sin because God has not changed. He is still a holy God offended by our sin. And so knowing that God has a standard and we have all fallen short of it, we recognize our current relationship, our current standing before God. Notice this, ref, this um, 
this little resource I have beside me. Guys, if you get this on camera, look, I want you to take a look at this. This picture over here represents Adam and all the darkness surrounding that image. That represents not only Adam, that, that picture in red represents everyone in this room. And the black surrounding us represents our sin. But over here, you see a picture of light, pure light. That represents God's holiness. You see, because every one of us are born with a desire to sin, the Scripture says we all sin, and because God, who is holy, cannot dwell in the presence of sin, we are separated from God by our sin. Every one of us starts there. The moment that we commit our first sin, we are separated from God. The question then has to be asked, well, how much sin can God allow into heaven? Romans 6, 23. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, that word death literally translated means separation. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they didn't automatically die physically that day, but they knew something within themselves. The reason why they saw themselves naked before God and the reason why they went and hid from God is because they themselves knew they were now separated from God. The reality of sin is this. Because God is holy, there is a price to be paid for sin, and that sin is e that price to be paid is eternal separation from God. Now, if the story were to end right there in the middle of that verse, how much hope would we have? Because how many of us in this room have sinned? Every one of us. And how much sin can God allow into heaven? None. Therein lies the problem. I'm glad that the verse continues. He said, for the wages of sin is death, but. But, aren't you glad he put a but in there, amen? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, eternal life is a free gift. But the free gift is not something. The free gift is someone. And his name is Jesus Christ, amen? Praise the Lord that, that the Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, just like God went looking for Adam and Eve, He found them hiding. God also came looking for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, because Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, but God demonstrated, He commended or demonstrated His love towards us. I like this next part. In that, listen, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died, listen, for us. Meaning he died in our place. He died as my substitute. When Jesus Christ was hanging on that cross, let me ask you a question. Something I really want you to think about. When he was dying on that cross, how much of your sin was Christ dying for? Isn't that a wonderful thought? You who were an enemy of God, 
lost and separated by your sin, God still chose of His own mercy to love you and sent His Son Jesus to die for every sin you ever have committed or ever will commit. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Christ died once and for all. When I'm in a group setting, I ask people this question, how much, or who did Christ die for? And the typical response that I get from people is this when I'm in a group setting. People say, well, Christ died for the world. I like to repeat the question until people get it. I say to them, who did Christ die for? Well, Christ died for us. Who did Christ die for? At some point, it begins to sink in. The most important message that I can give you today is this. When Christ came to die on a cruel cross, He died for Mike Coker. He died for my sin. And praise God, because He was God, He had the ability to die for your sin as well. Because all that was torn away from us by Adam's fall could be restored through Jesus Christ. The fellowship that was lost by Adam could be restored through the person of Jesus Christ. But the Bible says that not only did he die on the cross, but he was placed in a borrowed tomb. And what I find ironic about this picture is that the story goes on to show how Pilate placed his seal upon the tomb and then placed guards on either side of the tomb. The same men that were there to be witnesses of Jesus' death, when the Lord arose from the dead, they became the first witnesses of His resurrection. You see, the most encouraging, the most comforting thing about this message for you this morning is this. We do not serve a dead prophet. Praise God, we serve a risen Savior. Amen? I'm so grateful that He completed the work that God the Father, when Jesus had completed the work of salvation through His death, burial, God looked down with the sacrifice, looked upon the sacrifice that Jesus Christ had made for your sins and mine. And according to Romans chapter 4, God Himself, God the Father, was so pleased with the sacrifice that Jesus Christ had made for your sins and for mine that it was God the Father Himself that raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, showing that He had accepted the price that He had paid for your sins and mine. Our sins have a price that has been paid. It stands there before you as a free gift of eternal life for those of you that are willing to receive it. For the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, turn there if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Paul speaking to the church at Corinth, he said, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He arose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The Bible declares 
that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Mike, why was the virgin birth necessary? Let's return to the beginning. The reason why Jesus Christ had to be born of a virgin, remember I told you why did you, why or how have you been affected by Adam's curse? Because physically you were in Adam. That is why you were born with a desire to sin. And that's why you will sin. Well, Jesus, in order for him to be the acceptable sacrifice needed for the payment of your sins and mine, he could not have been born of Adam. That's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. That's why he had to live a perfect, sinless life so that he might die a substitutionary death in order that he might experience a glorious resurrection from the dead. All of these things are necessary for your salvation to be possible. Then through Christ. God made a bridge to himself through Jesus. Through the finished work of the cross and the tomb, God has provided a bridge for you and me to come to Him. If you would, turn to John chapter 14, verse 6. Speaking of Himself, Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now there's something very important within that passage of Scripture. Don't ignore the words of Scripture, folks, because they're also very important. You see, the word the is very important. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Everything would have changed if Jesus Christ had said, I am merely a way. Friend, let me tell you, if Jesus Christ were a way, then he would be no way. He is either the way or he is no way, for if he is a way, then he is a liar. People say, well, why could God not have chosen to have used these other religions to have brought people to himself because Jesus Christ was the only one worthy to be the sacrifice for the sins of mankind. I remember a conversation that Julie and I had with two men. We were at dinner one night and these two men were seated fairly close to us. And I was looking for an opportunity somehow to witness to, to these gentlemen. And so I had the idea, you know, I'm just, I'm going to offer to let them pray with us. And so I said to these gentlemen, I said, my wife and I, before we eat our meal, we always pray for our meal. Would you like to pray with us? The guy said, no, that's okay. You can go ahead. And so Julie and I prayed and, and we began to eat. And the guy said, let me ask you a question. Are y'all Christians? I'm glad he didn't ask me if I was a preacher. I said, uh, yes, we are. He said, I have always wanted to ask a Christian this question. You see, I have friends that are, and I won't name the world, the world religion that they were a part of, but 
They are a part of this religion, and I have friends that are a part of this other world religion. And then I've got some friends that don't believe anything at all, and then I've got a few friends that are Christians. He said, aren't we all basically going to the same place but using different roads to get there? I said, would you allow me a few minutes to explain to you the difference? He said, certainly. I said, you can take every world religion outside of Christianity, and they all have similarities. You see, they are following the way of religion, and religion teaches that we must do things, that we must perform religious acts, that we must do spiritual things in order to appease God in the hopes that he would accept us into heaven one day. Religion is man's vain attempt to reach God. Christianity teaches the way of salvation. That we are sinners separated from God by our sin with no hope. That's why God sent His Son Jesus. Because there had to be a payment made for our sin so Jesus Christ came to this earth and paid for our sin. His death on the cross paid for every sin I ever have committed or ever will commit. And to show that God accepted his sacrifice, he raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. And all I have to do is invite him into my life to forgive me and save me. And that's how I have eternal life. That man looked me in the eye and he said, that makes perfect sense to me. And I said, well, I pulled out a track. And I said, here's a little booklet that I'd like for you and your friend here to read. And at the end, if you would like to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, on the back, it shows you how to do that. And all the verses that I've just quoted for you are in this pamphlet. Please feel free to uh, read it, and my email's on there. Shoot me a message if I can help you. And it ended there, but here's what I helped him to understand. Listen, Christ is the only hope for eternal life. Your goodness is not going to get you into heaven. Your righteousness is not going to get you into heaven. In fact, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. The Bible is very direct. It says, for by grace, I'm careful about adding words here, but I don't change the, I don't change the connotation when I say it. For by grace alone are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I remember another conversation that I had. A reception from one of my family members. We were in a, a room, and it was very crowded. And we were walking around introducing ourselves and talking with people. And this one lady who had assisted uh, our family member with some decoration. She said, you're from the Baptist temple, aren't you? I said, yes, ma'am, guilty as charged. She said, I enjoy watching you guys on TV. She said, I attend, and she gave me the name of her church, and it was one of the popular world religions. And she said, I love your pastor's teaching. And we talked for a while about things. I said, well, may I ask you a, a, a question about your spiritual life? And she said, why, certainly. I said, would you say that you are 100% sure you are going to heaven? And her response was, yes, I know for sure. I said, well, let me ask you another question. 
Do you believe that you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven? And her response was, well, certainly. And then I named a few other things. And she said, yes, I believe you have to do all of those things in order to obtain God's favor. And I said, well, may I ask you another question? I like asking questions. I said, would you call baptism a righteous work? She said, well, of course I would. I said, would you call taking the elements, the sacraments, a righteous work? Well, of course. Do you believe going to church and living a good life that that's necessary? Would you call that a righteous work? She says, absolutely. I said, well, then how do you reconcile that with Titus chapter 3, verse 5, which says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by His mercy He has saved us. You see, the thing that, that's problematic in the minds of so many people is that they feel in, internally, I have to do something in order to earn God's favor. But please understand, if that's where you are this morning, there is nothing, I say nothing that you can do to remove your sin. And therein lies the problem. That's why Jesus Christ is the only way. Because religion cannot remove your sin. Righteous works cannot remove your sin. Being a good person and doing good things cannot remove your sin. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That's why it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that salvation is possible. And if you want the blood of Christ to be applied to your sin account, the first step you have to take is repentance. Because in order for you to turn to Christ, you must turn from whatever else you're depending upon. Turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 15. This, this is reiterated with one statement that the Lord Jesus made in the New Testament. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Christ himself is speaking here. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Look at me. Repent. Repent and believe the gospel. In order for these Jewish people that he was speaking to, in order for them to come to the point of eternal life, he's saying you've got to depend from the religion that you've been dependent upon. Because in order to come to Christ, you must tur first turn loose of everything else that you're trying to do to earn God's favor. Do you see? And then the last step of faith is described in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. I love this passage of Scripture. Because when a person arrives at this point, they recognize God's love for them. And now they have a choice to make. Because this verse of Scripture says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Not hope so, not maybe so, not think so, but thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. This little picture here before you shows 
the hand of the Lord Jesus reaching down to you. I told the people in the Philippines, I hope you realize how much God loves you. You see, just like Jesus went looking for Adam and Eve in the garden, just like He came looking for me the day He saved me, I told all those precious Filipino people, I believe the reason why you are here in the clinic today is because God has drawn you to Himself. His hand reaches downward to you. Notice that top hand is nail-scarred, representing the loving, the loving, pierced hand of the Lord Jesus. I said, the Lord in His sovereign way prepared us to be here today to share this message with you so that we could help you not only with your physical problems, but also with your spiritual problems. You see, today, every one of us will choose. I say the same thing to you here today. You have the same choice to make as those precious Filipino people did back in the fall. And really, there's only one of two choices to make. You can either accept and receive eternal life and a home in heaven, or you can reject Christ. But if you continue to reject Christ, friend, there's a place called hell that is just as real as heaven itself. Now your attitude may be, well, I, Brother Mike, I'm not saying no to God. I'm just simply saying I'm not ready. Or I want some time to think about it. Listen, you have that right. That's a choice of your free will, and God's not going to circumvent that. But please understand, that's just another way of telling God no. You, friend, have heard the gospel today. The question for you now is this. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Because in verse 13, God waits to hear from you. He says, for whosoever, that means anybody and everybody, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Can I tell you what that sounds like? That call that's in verse 13? Here's what that call sounds like. Dear God, I admit to you today that I am a sinner separated from you by my sin. But I believe that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for every sin I ever have committed or ever will commit. I believe that He was buried and arose from the dead so that all of my sins could be forgiven. All of my sins, past, present, and future, could all be forgiven. I turn from everything that I have been trusting in, my goodness, religion, my good works, I turn from it all, Lord. I repent and I turn to you. And God, I ask you, because of Jesus, to come into my life to forgive me of all of my sins and save my wretched soul. Now friends, 
Does that describe you? Let's all stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If I have just described you, I invite you to pray that prayer with me. I remind you of the two things that we began with. One day, every person in this room is going to die. And as we discovered earlier this week, there are many people that think they're going to be living a long, long time. Friend, we don't know when we're, when we're going to stand before God. You do not know that appointed day. So wouldn't it make sense to prepare now? If you need to receive Christ as your Savior, I invite you to pray silently right now with me the prayer that I just shared with you earlier. Let's pray together. Dear God, I admit to you that I am a sinner separated from you by my sin. I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for every sin I ever have committed or ever will commit. I believe that he was buried and arose from the dead so that all of my sins could be forgiven. I turn from everything that I have been depending on and I put my total faith in Jesus. Because of Him, dear God, I ask You right now to come into my life, forgive me of all my sins, and save my soul. In Jesus' name I pray, Amen. Did you just pray that prayer with me, sincerely from your heart to God's heart? I told you earlier in the service, that we all had things in common. We're all going to stand before God in, in judgment. Christian, are you making a difference in the world that is your mission field? Because people who love the Lord are actively involved in these four things. Number one, they're reading God's Word on a consistent basis and spending time with the Lord. They are working to improve their relationship and fellowship with God because the key to every relationship is effective communication. The Word of God is how God speaks to us. Prayer is how we speak to God. The pictures at the bottom show people that are in fellowship with one another. They are faithful to God's house because they know that that's part of, of improving their relationship. But there's one other picture there, the bottom that shows a cross on the entire world. You see, that's the responsibility that you and I have to tell others this glorious gospel. There are more people outside of these doors that you intersect with on a weekly basis. I want to impress upon you the thought that they're going to spend somewhere for all of eternity. And you may be the only voice that God has in their life. So with the time remaining, we're going to sing one more verse. This just goes out to believers. Maybe God has laid somebody on your heart. And you, honestly, before God, you have not done your part to 
doing what's necessary to reach them for Christ. I just simply encourage you to come to the altar and get on your knees and pray and ask God to save them and to give you the discernment and wisdom that you need when speaking to them. But decide today that you're going to make a difference for eternity. One final question. Is anybody going to be in heaven because of you?